ora and welcome to episode 103 of the Stag Raw. Look at that. Time flies, eh? Today I'm speaking with Gwyn Thurlow. Uh, Gwyn is an NZDA Wellington branch member. He's the vice president and treasurer there. Um, he's also on the New Zealand Deer Association National Heritage Trust charity. He's a secretary there and a member of the SCI Safari Club International New Zealand chapter. Um, Gwyn's also been presenting at the recent firearms um, law changes. Um, on behalf of NZDA, Gwyn's a lawyer by trade by day, I guess. Alpine hunter, recreational hunter by weekend. Um, tends to take a, a week, in fact, uh, make, make it worth his while. Does an awesome job. Um, Gwyn's got a massive fascination with the history of hunting in New Zealand. He's read a number of books and has a website which is in the show notes around um, literature on New Zealand hunting, um, the, the Hunter NZ is where you'll find Gwyn. Um, if you're also into reading a bit more stuff, I've just written another blog at Stag on, oh, let's start again, I've just written another blog article on my blog, stagryan.com is where you find that, or again, just go to the show notes, that's the easy way to do it. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, you just scroll down in your podcast app, and there's a number of links there, including my Instagram page, Gwen's Instagram page, his website page, um, the link to Prove It, the exogenous ketones at the end, the Facebook page, Why Keto. Yeah, it's all there. Simple. Thank you so much for listening. Let's get into this episode, episode 104. It's a cracker. Great yarn with a great man. Cheers. Kia ora, everybody. Um, speaking with Gwyn Thurlow, uh, aka the at underscore the underscore hunter underscore nz. <laughs> how's your hello? Week- how's hey. your weekend been, Gwyn? Uh, good. Yeah, this weekend's been uh, pretty chilled actually. I haven't been up too much. Um, just hanging with family this weekend. Oh, that's nice. And tell us about last weekend. You were doing quite a lot last weekend. Successful as well. Yeah, yep. So last weekend was Labor on weekend and I always try and get away for a trip. So a mate of mine and, and my brother went down to South Western and um, had a good weather window on the Friday, Saturday and Sunday and then um, had a poke around for some tar and managed to get a good good old 13-inch bull, um, which was great. Nice nice spring bull tar hunting, which I, I really enjoy this time of year. Yeah. What what does it feel about this time of year, mate? Oh, they're just um, in a little bit more reasonable places to access, and you have, you know, nicer weather than um, middle of winter or in, in the rut. And um, the big boys are sort of really hungry, so you can often get into those creeks and find something with some decent hooks. Yeah, man. And inside of the day, were quite bleached. Was the um, cape still holding at this time of year? Or? Yeah, the cape's fine. So right about now, it's there's still a lot of snow about, so they haven't started molting, and you can um, still find some some good capes. So they're not as good as the winter capes, but they're certainly still um, you know worth having as a rug or. Hmm. Now frozen. <laughs> Really frozen. Oh, 
there you go, you're back. So you're good as having as a cape, as a rug, and then that, then you went when then you went still. What'd you get up to? Um, yeah, so so we yeah we got onto this a couple of a couple of good bulls and uh, managed to to get him and I took his head skin out. I'm not sure whether I'll mount him or not because I have a couple of good good bulls, good 13 inch bulls already. So probably yeah. the next one I'd mount personally would have to have a 14 inch uh, set of hooks. Yeah. And so what sort of was your aim for the hunt or, you know, what, what was your decision behind taking that animal in particular? Um, how were you sort of get, getting an idea of that was a taker? That one was um, right on dusk. He was in a mob or on a face where we'd seen about six bulls over the course of the day. And mm. um, we knew two of them were good bulls and the rest were sort of 12 inches and 11s. And we just, um, you know, I like to like to get a result from a trip. I know a lot of people, um, you know, um, want a tar, and 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 you you got to take your opportunities when you can because you go on a lot of trips and you don't get one. And so, when you see a big bull, I think you got to take your opportunities while you while you can. Yeah, mate. And so, uh, different area to where you were a fortnight earlier with um, the guy that sort of encouraged me to get you on this podcast uh ben humphrey um how yeah. it almost looked from from the outside that they were two totally different uh um, experiences obviously weather and and um, range and then num you know terrain's different as well and, and then number of num number of animals seem to be different so if you could uh con compare and contrast that'd be awesome yeah that's right so yeah obviously um you alluded to Ben, so Ben's a good good mate of mine, Ben Humphrey, who um, is in the bay there with you, and I think he's in the president of your your deer stalkers branch, so he's a great guy. And we had another mate, Lockie, um, who hasn't had an opportunity to find a good bull yet, and we were trying to get one for him. So Ben and I, we um, same time two years ago did the King of the Mountain film um, mm. with Cam Henderson at Hunter's Journal. And then we thought, well, with this tar cull going on and our mate Lockie really wanting to get a bull, we thought we'd try the East Coast with him because it can be a little bit better better going at this time of year than the West Coast. Um, and, yeah, so we went in the, the two thumbs on that trip. So we flew in quite far back um, into some really popular tar country, actually. And it was interesting to see the results of all the helicopter culls, which had happened over the winter. Um, Obviously, they'd gone over the valley in two stages because there was two types of carcasses. So one set that was a bit older and um, more decomposed. And then obviously the, the last push um, just before they got the 10,000 target. And so we saw, you know, quite a few, quite a few dead tar um, in, in most creeks or gut systems or where you'd expect to see tar. There was at least one or two dead tar and in, in, Obviously, the chopper had just gone through and sort of cherry-picked the valley and sort of kept moving um, around. So, But in saying that, there was still tar there. Um, a lot of animals to look at still, and we just didn't find a, a bull on that East Coast trip. Mm -hmm. And so what was the, the helicopter that flew you in? Did he sort of give you good hope or any information, or was he also equally unsure about what you'd find? 
No, so he he wasn't involved in the tar control himself. So we were flying out of um, Mesopotamia, so Malcolm Prowling's operation there, his his chopper. Um, we actually had a spot in mind, and the weather was so bad that he just ended up dumping us through a weather window in a valley that we had no map for and hadn't planned sort of to be there. So it was a little bit of a curveball. Um, we were a little bit up too high for that time of the year as well. So we were sort of, um, in my opinion, not low enough in altitude into the little creeks where the spring growth is. So we ended up spending a couple of days up too too high in the snow and ice and then went down lower and found the animals. But he, he just put us where he could. And um, it, he did express his views and saying, you know, there's better ways to manage it and everyone has their own views on how how to manage it and he obviously has a, his safari operation as well so you know for him they're a resource and they're an income mm. so they're important to his his business um, and obviously as a rec hunter people fly in with him as well so he probably um, would like to see a few tar around still yeah, absolutely. And then, so how how did the um, conditions and environment differ um, this time on the west coast? So completely, di- oh, actually, on completely different environment. So we were in a classic east coast big valley with shingle slides and um, you know open creeks and not a tree to be seen. And uh, up in the tussock, not much scrub. And then the west coast, we were down south westland. So. Mm not far from um, the glaciers and that's deep, you know, really vertical classic glacier form valleys, so steep sides and lots of monkey scrub um, and, you know, you lose the balls in and out of the scrub and then, so you've got to, you've got to do a lot more glassing and have a lot more patience on the west coast than, than mm. you do on the east coast. Nice, mate. So how long have you been alpine hunting for and, How's it sort of shaped what you've done and, and, and when it comes to tar and all the other alpine species? Yeah, so, I mean, um, tar and chamois are my focus. I'd probably say chamois is my number one New Zealand game animal. I'd hunt them 365 days a year if I could. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just really enjoy being in the, in the mountains and in the hills. Um, how do I get into it? So we've got a mad keen uncle in our family who's a a really, really good hunter and he used to do meat hunting and he was a, a high country shepherd and worked on Molesworth and he introduced me and my brother into into Nelson Lakes Tops. So mm-hmm. we sort of got into that in our late teens when we were sort of big enough and strong enough to cope following him. And sort of getting up there, and we first had a really good trip um, on chamois, and mm. that's when I the first time I ever learnt about the animal or even knew they existed when was when we saw them. And we're like, you know, what are these? These things are awesome. Mm. Um, and it sort of evolved from there. So having a really good teacher who was competent in the mountains, and then alpine hunting really took off for me when I. Um, got got a job as a guide on Fox Glacier. So um, I did a guide season there because um, they take on a lot of people over the summer and you can apply and got picked up and learned a whole bunch of skills 
and mainly confidence. So confidence on ice, confidence with crampons, ropes, and um, that that really let me loose on the mountains, having having those skills and having um, access to the to the west coast and all the all the tracks when I was living down there. Um, so that's sort of what the two aspects that have sort of got me into alpine hunting. Nice. And what part of your life were you at when you took on the guide role? <clears throat> so I was, um, I was a graduate at KPMG, which is a big accounting firm. Mm-hmm. And this was right in the GFC. So um, it would have been about 2008. And I'd been working there and they said, oh, does anyone want to take extended leave? Um, we'll let you guys take some holiday. You can travel. Um, take some time off and then at that time my younger brother Brent um, Mm -hmm. who was also in the the King of the Mountain film and we do a lot of hunting together he he was actually guiding there and I said oh how about if I do you guys need a you guys down there need any more um, guides and he asked the team down there which was run by um, Marius Braun and they said oh yep we'll come down and test you out so I went down there and they said all right we'll you'll be fit enough to do the job and you seem safe enough and responsible enough to guide a bunch of tourists on the ice. So they trained me up and and then um, I ended up staying there for over six months, about six months and quit mm. my job All right. at KPMG and then decided to go traveling. So that sort of was a big sort of turning point in my life is, is that, that moment actually. Nice. So I was, I was going to say, um, and it might have been the case originally, you, you sort of had a little bit of job security when you went down there that you were intended to come back and they were holding a position. Was that right? Or Yeah, yeah, they yeah. were holding they were holding it open. Just They just obviously wanted, there wasn't enough work at that point mm. in New Zealand. So they, they didn't want to let the trained people go or the people that they'd hired go, but they, they were giving flexible arrangements and sort of slipped through their fingers. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was a good experience at KPMG and it, after that, went over to Sydney and became a corporate lawyer and we haven't looked back. But, um, yeah, it was good. Nice. And so where'd you go overseas? Uh, Sydney. Oh, just so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was meant to be a pit stop on the <laughs> way to London and just the classic Kiwi Trail to London. and, you know, and um, But the New Zealand crisis happened a little bit before the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And then in that period of time the job market in London dried up so but Sydney obviously had the mining boom at that time so Sydney yeah. you know Melbourne were cranking and um, I basically put my CV into one firm and got offered a job and was was there around six years later. <laughs> nice mate yeah that was what I sort of found um, with Brexit trying to go to UK and Ireland though it's kind of like two years earlier had been like yeah come over just you know we'll hold we have a job and then, oh, maybe if you come over and get experience in the area, then we might have a job for you. I was like, oh, not, <laughs> not driving halfway around the world for those sort of rents and yeah, to maybe get a job. It was, it was a bit of a shame, but yeah. And so where are you, where are you placed now with, with law? So I'm still a lawyer. So I'm still in, in the corporate law game and a, a big firm in Wellington. Yeah. Um, so that's my, my day job. And we've been home for three years now so um and really loving being back in new zealand and with family and having all this hunting 
yeah. in, in Sydney and you can do the raw or you can do a long weekend or you might fit in a New Year's trip. So I'd always try and do some big, big trip. But here you can obviously, you know, being back in New Zealand, you can go whenever you want or whenever you can when the weather's good. Mm. Now, obviously, we, we spoke a few weeks back over the phone and you said that rather than try your damnedest to try and get into that Aussie hunting environment, you just jump in the ditch. Now, I know um, flying from Gold Coast to Queenstown was almost cheaper than flying from Hawke's Bay to Queenstown. How, <laughs> how did you get on out of Sydney, a direct flight? Yeah, that's, that's actually probably fair. You're right. It's probably cheaper flights from Australia to New Zealand than regional. Mm. <laughs> um, it's actually not, Sydney's not that far away. And, you know, when you want to do a big mission, you, you want a week or you want to say, take that weekend of the week and, you know, sandwich a, a week in between two weekends. Mm. And at the end of the day, when you're, you're working, you've got four weeks annual leave anyway. And when you live in Wellington, there's not a lot of hunting immediately in Wellington. So you've got to go either, you know, up to the, um, up to around Taupo or over to the Tauruas or the Aorangis. Mm. So it's still a bit of a, a mission to even get away. And then heading down south again, you've got to get a ferry. So it's just, just another leg to the journey. Um, mm. But yeah, in terms of trying to get into hunting in Australia, it's really hard. Um, you know, for example, if you want to even go to a sports shop and handle a gun in, in New South Wales where I lived, you needed to go through a whole permit process and have a permit to even um, talk about rifles and hold them. And because I was trying to buy a new new rifle in New Zealand and wanted to, to see it in Sydney, so I made the effort to go to the sports shop. And they said, "Oh, show us your license. Um, you're not allowed to handle guns." So, and and it's a lot more restrictive over there. I know Victoria's okay. Mm-hmm. But for me to go hunting Samba in Victoria would be just as hard as coming back here. Um, and I know where I'm going in New Zealand, so it was just an easy decision to put my efforts on coming back here and rather than becoming a hunter in Australia, which is quite a lot of barriers to entry. Yeah, and I guess that's what female of them over there um, are using bows and just because it's less of a hassle. <laughs> that's right, yeah. yeah. It's, it's really hard to own a firearm in Australia. Mm. And and so, did you study in Otago or Wellington, Auckland? Would you study? Yeah, Otago, um, and that was great for hunting. Um, and that's when you sort of you really um, meet a couple of good mates who are into hunting. You've got lots of opportunity not to go to course, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> take time off, and um, made the most of that as well. So did a lot of hunting and fed the flat with venison and. Um, you know, you can go to the Blue Mountains or the Catlins or you can get to South Westland, Fiordland. Um, yeah. And there's really good hunting even just around Dunedin, actually. Mm. And so what, what was your target species down there or just things that moved to fill the freezer? Yeah, mainly mainly red deer yeah. um, or fallow deer. So I'd spend a lot of wasted weekends walking around the Blue Mountains. So you'd apply for a block from dock you'd get a little permit for a block and you'd spend your two or three days there and because I was a student I could always apply for the midweek blocks Mm -hmm. so I got to know the Blue Mountains quite well over the five years I was in Dunedin. Are you allowed to um, camp in there in the Blue Mountains because I know the Tatapui blocks near Cambridge um, similar system dock runs the ballots but you're not allowed to camp in there what's it like in Blue Mountains? 
No, I think it's the same. So no, no overnighters. Yeah. Um, but the Otago Deerstalkers have a big um, cabin. You can rent cabins really reasonably priced if you're a deerstalker. Yeah. So I joined the deerstalkers down there, um, and that was a big draw card was their facility. So mm. I've got really good facilities, big big hall, and then you can book cabins. Awesome, mate. And so then moving to Auckland, was that right? Yeah, yeah, moving to Auckland, and that's when I linked up with old old Ben Humphrey. Um, <laughs> and then him and I were doing crazy things. He he was a lawyer at the time as well at a big law firm um, before he um, left the big smoke and became a farmer your way. But we'd do crazy things like um, pack up the car, take everything on a get out of work early on a Friday, drive to Talpo and go seeker hunting. Yes. Um, and Lockie, who came on the hunt two weeks ago, also we did a lot of seeker hunting um, together. So we'd mission down there, and that's um, you know really challenging to hunt seeker. And I only ever got two seeker mm -hmm. um, from probably twelve trips at least or more. So um, have a lot of respect for seeker. Right, that makes me feel better already. <laughs> I've done yeah, two, yeah. I've done two in the bush. And then obviously that after, uh, that morning with Ben on the back of his farm, which yeah, I've, I've spoken about that a few times. That, that was a lot a lot easier than, than walking around the, around the bush, mate. Um, that morning Ben was sort of saying that you guys might have met up, or, or you met up with someone through a forum. He said it was before the days of Tinder and and online dating. Was that you, or was that somebody different? <laughs> so yeah, that's right. That was me. So I met a friend of. Ben, so I got introduced for another friend, but the old fish and hunt forum. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was the mecca for New Zealand um, digital online hunters or keyboard warriors. And, <laughs> you know, you can um, sit behind a keyboard and um, praise or criticize people at will. And yeah, I met there was something like you, there was a tab um, where to hunt or who to hunt or join a hunt, and I went on there and said, "Hey, I'm going." I want to go down to uh, to the Clements Mill. Does anyone want to join? And yeah, um, yeah and, and and we obviously both I don't know is it, you both swipe right and we <laughs> <up> and, <laughs> and yeah. then yeah we've been really good hunting mates ever since. Yeah, so that's cool. Thank the Fish and Hunt Forum for that. I'm sure <laughs> that that forum will be responsible for a, a lot of lifelong hunting friendships actually. Yeah, um, I was I was speaking with uh, Paul. Paul Michaels on Monday night and that's what we're sort of saying about you mentioned Clements Mill Road there and for the Aucklanders out there going oh where do I go hunting it's always you know, go to the Kaimais unspecified and um, or Clements Mill Road and yeah, people call it State Highway 1 on, the, on some of those forums don't they say so how did you oh. sort of find getting down there and, and that's what Ben said oh I've never seen anybody out there but how did you sort of find that um, after having so much on your doorstep and needing, needing to jump in a car and drive a couple of hours to, to get anywhere. Yeah, it was frustrating, actually. And um, maybe that was one of the reasons I wasn't happy living in Auckland. And I've, I feel sorry for those guys up there because I know there's a lot of hunters and um, they have to go along, the longest out of anyone in New Zealand to get into good, to good hunting. So, um, you know, it's um, but the Clements Mill Road is amazing it just keeps delivering the deer are, um, are really educated and you have to be a good hunter so you learn a lot there but i mean every year there's spikers and wieners so every year there's a new batch of um, 
not that educated seeker deer in there. So, yeah. you know, you can still get them. Um, and then, you know, most people, you've got the, the big campsite and a couple of trailheads you can get into. But if you go back two hours, you know, there's seeker deer there and you're not far from the heartland of, you know, Poranui and up the reef here and, and that. So there's some really good areas back there if you're willing to just walk with a head torch. So that's yeah. all we did is we got on a trail, found some, you know, you learn an area, find some leading ridges and get it, get there at, you know, two in the morning on a Friday um, and you're hunting, you know, you have a quick sleep and then you're up stalking. Yeah. And the cool thing about Seeker is that you're always in the hunt with them. You can hear them. Um, they'll whistle at you, and it's just really enjoyable. Yeah. With those ridges, were, was there tracks on them, or is it quite open through from there because of the deer, or is it a bit of bash? Uh, I mean, it's pretty, there's some good ridges, and then there's some steep um, stuff because of the the way there's lots of creeks and it's quite volcanic. So you've got some really steep, steep faces and steep creeks. Um, but to be honest, I mean, you, you can look at the maps and figure out what, what the good ones are. The bush is, you know, pretty healthy given the number of deer that you seem to bump into in there. And, um, mm. you know, there's lots of little campsites and it's so heavily hunted that you, you find people put little um, track markers up but you'll be wise not to follow them because they cross over or someone's done something and it takes you to a random spot that that person knows about and you just get yourself lost pretty quickly trying to find, follow other people's trail markers. Yeah. And so what range is that in? Is that Kaimanoas or Ahimanoas? What, what, what are you doing? No, isn't that um, in the Kaimanoas? Kaimanoas, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on that, I was going to say uh, Chris Cross. Was, was telling us that Ahimana was, was in good numbers at the moment. Um, yeah, not that, not that we'll tell Doc that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think everywhere is good for hunting at the moment. It's, yeah. it's a really good time to get into hunting and have a good chance, actually. I think the numbers are, are as reasonable as they have been in the last 20 years, that's for sure. And I've noticed over my hunt, time hunting, you see... You know, instead of just one or two deer or the hind and the winner, you'll see the three or, or two mobs or six deer together or mm-hmm. on the tops you might see a bit more, which is it's, it's good to see. Um, and they're generally pretty healthy deer now because the forest is still not eaten out like it used to be. So, yeah. you know, the deer are not in too bad a nick. I know there's some places in the country where the deer aren't in a good condition, like Waikiri Moana and that. But, um, Places where I hunt, there's, there's enough deer around, and they're in a good enough condition. Awesome, awesome. Good for the good for the freezer, and hopefully, um, if there's good genetics amongst them, good good for the wall as well. Um, so yeah. going back to to the forum, and I guess those all those people on Facebook and stuff like that were asking where to go. Um, you're involved with NZDA down there in Wellington. You're the vice president and treasurer. And um, what do you think as a, as an insider of NZDA? Now, in you know, 2019 and going into 2020, what can people sort of expect? Um, you're involved with redoing the constitution, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I mean, there's a lot of exciting, there's actually a lot of exciting things happening with, with the NZDA. And um, they're obviously representing hunters on a national level on quite a few issues now. Um, and you've got these sort of really big high level issues, like you mentioned the constitution. Um, that was looked at last year um, 
with the directive of the new managing committee that they wanted to look at the rules because you know we're as an association something like 80 years old mm. and i think the last time it was rewritten was a long time ago and you need to modernize it and the, they recognize that you know as you and i are communicating on like a, a zoom face-to-face -face meeting like they need to be able to um, modernize the way they do things and that causes um, some people to be upset because a lot of people don't like change people think you don't need to to change what's worked for them um, but on the same time they're trying to be modern and meet the expectations of younger hunters and new hunters um, so I think the deer stalkers um, it's an interesting it's often criticized but they're a hum humble bunch of guys um, and it's run on a local level and you know it's classic people don't like to talk too much about what they've done but when you scratch the surface and um, meet the people give a little bit um, and I think the thing that a lot of younger hunters make the mistake of is that they're going to rock up to a meeting shake a few hands and then the first thing they ask you is oh I want to go hunting can you take me hunting or I want to um, can you tell me some spots and then when people are a bit cagey and, and don't tell them and then they um, don't get what they want they, they leave a bit upset um, like they haven't had had their needs met but you've got to put in a, a bit of time and you're asking a lot of a hunter to just give you a spot um, so you've got to show up um, get be engaged and then you'll meet one or two people and um, that's what I think um, the the deer stalkers is really good at on a on a branch level is you can meet one or two people at your level mm. And then if you go to a few meetings, you'll start making friends and people want to know you're a good hunter, you're a safe hunter, they want to probably see you on the shooting range. And I think hunting's quite a, um, used to be quite a hard thing to do because the numbers weren't there. All the old guys with the knowledge are hesitant to share it. So you've got to sort of crack that, um, crack that facade. But once you're in there, everyone's great. And people will tell you all these spots and you'll, you know, it's a really open place. And, you know, someone like you meeting a guy like Ben in your branch, mm. he's super generous. Like he'll, he'll help people out left, right and center and um, take them hunting. I know he's taken a lot of guys hunting. So. And then on a national level, I mean, um, seeing it more as a, I used to be a passive, I'd call myself as a passive NZDA member. I used to, go to one or two meetings, I'd put a, if I shot a good head that year, I'd put it in the competition. I wasn't really engaged politically and didn't really care about the future of hunting. I just wanted to go hunting and why would I want to just sit in boring meetings when they do admin and talk about notices from Doc and where the 1080 was going to be dropped and do we have to meet with Doc or are we going to maintain this heart or I, all that never used to interest me. But as I've sort of gotten older and um, more attuned and, and seen the issues and then moving back to Wellington and seeing the effects of the politicians or the government of the day on the policy and the mood and the directive they give to Department of Conservation and whether they have money for huts and money for tracks or money for 1080 or not, um, you know, you can really have an influence on the committee of the deer stalkers. And the deer stalkers always has a seat at the table. So it's a long established um, organization with really passionate, competent people um, who love hunting and love their local area. 
and have good relationships with the local dock people that they work with and um, can we can really influence things um, on a branch level but also on a national level for example we were asked to speak at the select committee for the the firearms bill the other day and you know one of one of the few esteemed um, institutions asked to speak for 15 minutes and mm. you know the deer stalkers have a seat on the um, on the TAR liaison group with DOC and really influence um, that process as well and the deer stalkers you know when you scratch the surface and see who's involved with TAR Foundation or the Seeker Foundation or um, you know it's always someone from the NZDA that's got a dual hat on mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really overlooked often by people. The, the guys in the Deerstalkers, um, in my opinion, because they don't blow their own trumpet, people aren't aware of what they do, and, um, and then people only complain when they're not given that hunting spot or their trophies disqualified from a competition because it was um, you know, shot out of season or shot with a spotlight, and they feel like that's unfair. But... Um, you know, for all its warts, I think the Deerstalkers is a is a really good organisation, and guys like me and Ben bringing a sort of a younger face to it as well. And we realise the need to get on the boards or on the committees and be more approachable. And um, that was sort of the thinking behind the King of the Mountain film. Like we came up with the concept, pitched it to the to the old guys, and they said, "Yeah, go for it, do it." Um, anyway, so I think there's a lot of opportunity there. If, you know, if any of the listeners are thinking they want to get on the committee or they want to see change, you just put your hand up and get stuck in and no one's stopping you. Yeah. <clears throat> so on, on the King of the Mountain film, you said you sort of asked um, powers of B, if you will, what, what have they sort of felt? Has there been a bit of pride in what, what was made there by Cam? And, and um, have you had much feedback going, going forward from that? Yeah. Oh, I mean... The process was awesome. So getting meeting Cam, um, didn't even know him. Um, he was sort of um, a friend or a, a mate of my club, uh, Tim Watson, who's also on the Heritage Trust with me. His brother's a filmmaker, and he said, "Oh, we've got this guy, this young guy who's really keen into making films, and he's getting into um, hunting films, and give him a call." And we literally had a couple of text messages. And then between Cam, Tim and myself, we wrote a little pitch. Mm -hmm. So we wrote like a little two-page pitch and said, this is the concept, this is the shots we want to get, this is um, what we want to get out of it, and this is the cost. And we ran it past the board. So the Deerstalk is one thing they oh, is hard for them is everything has to be done by a committee. Yeah. So when you have a big committee of 10 people, you've got to get a vote. And so you've got to convince people that things are a good idea and people have different views on what's the right way to spend money. And But I think the backdrop, we just had Eugenie Sage at our national conference. So she huh. talked about the TAR plan and her view that there were too many TAR. And we sort of saw this whole thing coming. And we said, look, we've got to get out and be proactive, do a trip, show what, the, show what it's like to be on a Deerstalkers um, club hunt or party hunt and um, also capture tar and tar hunting and show it in a really good light. So just, you know, hunt with your good mates and your family in the mountains, um, you know, doing it free range, fair chase, mm 
also explaining about the the animals um, and also the need to shoot a nanny or two when you go hunting for meat as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was what we were trying to capture in the in the film. And I mean, Cam blew us away. Like his um, his like I don't know cinematography and ideas and the way he's you know he'd run around the hill capturing different angles. He, he probably walked twice what we walked. And we walked way back into the Adams Wilderness area um, where you can't fly and he carried all his camera gear. Um, and, you know, we had a week and um, the the four of us, Ben, Brent, me and Cam, just, you know, had an awesome time filming. And Brent got a good ball and Ben got a good ball and we saw nannies, shots and nannies. And I managed to shoot a 16-year-old nanny and we had beautiful weather. It just couldn't have worked out better, really, for showcasing um tar hunting and promoting like the way that the nzda conducts or should conduct on a hunt conduct yourself on a hunt which is being being a responsible hunter and thinking about your environment and um enjoying it with good mates so it was just a it was awesome actually really good yeah and so i've got um both nz hunter and uh hunter's journal beside me and you're in both of them um (laughs) (laughs) well how does how does writing fit the mold is it you know a separate passion or or part of your motivation with nzda or or just you know just another avenue for you and i know you're big into reading um plenty of the books as well yeah well obviously i'm i'm not i'm used to reading and writing as, as my day job you know the way I, I describe being a lawyer is you're paid to read the boring things and write the boring things that other people can't be bothered doing. Yeah, I'd agree um, with that. <laughs> yeah. So that's basically what you do as a lawyer is you read every last word and think about it. Um, and I really love, um, as you mentioned, I love books. So I'm a huge hunting book collector. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got my first hunting book as a present at uni, I think. And I didn't even know that hunting books were a thing. Um, and I got given one by a mate and I was like, this is awesome. These, these hunting books are great. You can read a chapter or two at bed at night and go to bed thinking about hunting um, and have, have dreams about other people's experiences. And you can shortcut a lot of learning so you can learn about other species without having to hunt it. Mm. And the more you read and read other people's experiences, um, the more you, you can sort of learn um, on on ways to tackle different situations or because hunters love, they love hunting, but they love telling a yarn. And mm. so the amount of hunting books is, is um, huge. And so I got into it by reading and collecting books and going to the library. I'd go to the library and get all the hunting books and read the library out um, <laughs> and wait for the next one. And then when I could afford books, when I wasn't a student and, not getting them from the library, I just started buying them. And then I think it's just a trait of hunters, like trophy hunters and hunting, you're like collectors, like, and then you chase the better thing, and so you want a signed book, or mm. you want the rare book. And I think it's just book, an extension yeah. of trophy hunting. So I think you'd be surprised about the amount of trophy hunters that are book collectors. Yeah. And you can sort of carry on... Um, the, the living the hunt through books and trying to find books. And then the writing aspect, um, I don't know, I just thought one day I'd write, I'd write a hunt. So I mentioned earlier my uncle um, 
took us chamois hunting. And so when I shot my first chamois, I thought, I, I want to write about this. So mm. I wrote, wrote it up and sent it into Rod and Rifle. Mm-hmm. And that, at that time, Brendan Coe was, was the author and uh, the, the editor, and he ran Rod and Rifle. And then I didn't hear anything. So I wrote this story, um, sent it in, and nothing happened. And I was like, oh, obviously, they get lots of stories, and it wasn't a great great story and then Greg Dooley came out with NZ Hunter and he used to be a writer for Rod and Rifle and I think he sort of broke away and wanted to do his own Mm. magazine and I got the first edition of that and I was like oh and it said we want writers send us your story and this must have been about 2007 and I just shot my first big tar so way up the Copeland um, and I wrote a two-part article for Greg about hunting um, tar and red deer up the up the Copeland mm-hmm. and he published it and then it was a really awkward situation because I went to the magazine shop and to pick up the copy which I knew was coming up which was in, in Greg's magazine I think it's the second or third edition because he obviously wanted new new writers and then sitting next to it was the Rod and Rifle magazine and I flicked the pages and then my story was in <laughs> my t- my chamois story had just magically appeared in the rod and rifle um, without me even knowing it so it was quite awkward and I had a conversation with um, Greg and he said oh you can't write for multiple magazines you've got to pick and choose and <laughs> Greg was doing awesome stuff and um, I said oh look I'll, I'm, I'd love to keep writing for Greg and so ever since I've been whenever I have a good trip I'll pen the story and send it into and to Greg and I think the key thing is you've got to take photos as well so a lot of guys can um, they can really hunt well they can um, shoot big animals but to get in the magazines you've got to you've got to write something take good photos shoot something and have the time to to put it in so it's um, but yeah I've, I've and then Cam so Cam um, brought a copy of his um, sort of prototype hunter's journal into the King of the Mountain trip. Yeah, yeah. And so we were in the hut there, and he like um, must have been carrying it around with him the whole time. And um, we got back off the mountain, and we were, and then he pulled this little magazine out, and he's like, "Oh, I just wanted to um, ask you guys what you think about this." And we were absolutely blown away. We were like, "Man, this is so classy." Um, and we're kind of like, who is this guy? He's just a young man um, getting into the hunting scene, making videos, and then trying to publish his own um, awesome hunters, classy sort of different magazine coffee table thing. And so we're passing that round, and um, and then at the end, I, I think I said, oh, do you want me to write about this trip? And he's like, oh, yeah, that'd be cool. So, and then I've been helping him um, write some some pieces and he's really happy to so it's sort of a different angle with the hunter's journal he wants more opinion pieces and Mm. more provocative um whereas for greg or rod and rifle you know they're long established they're not trying to set themselves apart and they they want really good adventure stories and the editors usually do their own gear reviews and so they just want you know cover photo sort of animal hunts Mm. Cam was Cam's like, oh, so do you think you could write about this? And 
the one you're just holding up, I wrote the rant for him. And yeah. that was just about, you know, um, the need for my viewers, just join the, join any club, join your local shooters um, club, join your local deer stalkers or SCI or Seeker Foundation, whatever you are attracted to. Because I'm not saying you, you need to join the deer stalkers, it just suits me. Um, but you've got to join something. Mm. And then between um, writing that article, a whole bunch of other stuff um, by the guys at Point South. So Cam wrote yeah. a really good one about um, comparing, you know, fishing game versus the GAC. Whereas my article was more comparing the, the club, so the voluntary deer stalkers to um, forest and bird. Yeah. So more of the incorporated societies versus the statutory bodies. Um, but we're both saying the same thing effectively is that hunters um, have had a free ride for a long time and we actually need to start contributing more um, and having a voice. And the, the, the way you have the voice is you support those passionate people that are willing to step up and join as a GAC counsellor or, you know, get on the NZDA National Association or, or run a local branch. Hunters, I think, need to realise that, um, you know, even though we have a free resource, things, things have a cost. Mm -hmm. And to maintain that free resource, we need to contribute to it. We need to be doing the helping these organisations get ahead and have a voice because the one thing that reading and reading all these old books has taught me is that we're having the same arguments over and over and over again. So ever since deer were first procured and released and they got chamois and tar and moose, there were people that didn't want it to happen. So you can go back in the 1880s and read the old government reports and the old newspapers and they were debating whether to bring chamois or chamois to New Zealand. And so they said, why do we want these? And at the end of the day, a lot of these decisions come down to, to politics and funding and budgets. And I think hunters need to realise that is we can influence that by being political ourselves or mm. influencing the politicians. So, you know, the GAC advises the Minister of Conservation on big game hunting. We need to support the GAC so that they have the funds to get the data together and to have the time and have the full-time paid staff to advise the minister about hunting. Mm. If there's no one there to advise her or we haven't funded it properly, they can't do that their job to the best of their ability, which is in the best interest of hunters. Yeah. <clears throat> and then the GAC, their, their role stops at advising and science and management and hopefully herds of special interest, which would be the absolute dream if we could have Wapiti and um, Tar and Seeker as herds of special interest that are managed properly. And then you've got the clubs, which do a totally different thing. They provide gun ranges, facilities, hunts, courses, competitions which is completely parallel and although it relates to hunting they just they they um satisfy a different need and so you need both of these to be firing on all cylinders and the way you've got to do that is um you know hunters have to put money in, into these organizations and membership mm. you know i know you're a member of the deer stalkers and you know you've probably got your own reasons for joining up and that um, but it, I think it's fantastic that you are and that you're, you know, you're bearing the fruits because you've had a great, you've met Ben and had a great trip with him and you'll 
you'll meet another a couple of other mates that you'll go on massive missions with and spend time in the hills and um you know i, I think um without these clubs and that would be a sad place absolutely mate um while you're talking about the Cam Animal Council, the GAC there, um, and you said about getting the evidence, that's the sort of thing um, with my science background that's a real frustrating thing. And it probably speaks to you as a lawyer that all this um, sort of hearsay that goes around about, you know, what's going on in different parts of the country and what's going on with the species. Like even when it came to the Tarkov, the thing that rolled me up was the margin of error of what they had estimated the tar numbers at. And I was just like... How can you base a decision to, you know, wipe out 10,000 tar when potentially that's going to take it down to sort of 7,000 or so? Or maybe it's going to leave it at about 35,000 if this is your margin of error. What, how do you sort of feel about the hearsay aspect of it? Yeah, I mean, for me it was easy that, that those numbers were were not the basis for the tarkal. The tarkal was based on um, the Minister of Conservation's personal views and ideology. Yeah. And the the tar the tar numbers or the calculations were to support that view, mm-hmm. um, and sort of put some framework around it. Um, I mean, I'm not I, I I I'm not a scientist, so I can't tell, and I'm just a recreational hunter. But I've done a lot of tar hunting over the years and both sides of the coast and there's a few spots where there's too many mm. um and but there's spots where there 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 aren't many and I, I find it quite hypocritical on the one hand we're looking at the the gun law debate which is a, a 1983 law mm-hmm. and then we're looking at the tar plan which is also i think a 1983 plan and the government's happy to criticise the historical firearms law as being old and out of date and not fit for the modern times and using that excuse to have a go at rewriting it. Yeah, on the, the same same side, same age, they're saying, no, the tar plan is fit for purpose. It doesn't need to change. It, was, it still works. So I think in both instances, the government is just conveniently using a line that suits their agenda. Mm-hmm. So the tar management plan was set when tar numbers were absolutely decimated in the 80s through WARO. Mm-hmm. And that was set at a number so that there was a minimum level for recreational hunters. So the NZJ had a massive hand in putting that plan together. Um, one of our branch members actually was in um, the Forest Service at the time and wrote that plan. And one of the interesting things he says is people were so upset that there was a tar on the front of the document and he fought to have it recognised um, and put a picture of the animal because certain people don't want any tar, um, but a certain uh, an equivalent amount of other people do want the tar. Um, and both of them are okay to hold their views, in my view. You don't need to love tar, you don't need to hate tar. We've got them, we need to manage them. Is 10,000 the right number? Probably not. It was probably just a number that was agreed to at the time because it was more than there was actually on the ground. Mm-hmm. And people thought, well, 10,000 sounds like a good number. It's a huge area. Whereas now we realise um, there's too many tar in some spots and there's not many in others. 
we've had a massive tenure review process where high country farmers reverted back to a dock estate. So that's highly productive land that there holds a lot of tar in those areas. And that wasn't part of the national estate when that plan was written. And they've got to manage a whole huge area of New Zealand now um, and keep tar under control. And I think the only way they're going to do it sensibly is with, with hunters. And so they need to listen to hunters so that we work with them in the long term. Yeah. Um, and throwing around a 1983 report as a justification for slaughtering a massive game resource is, I think, just convenience to back up, as I say, the ideology. Yeah. And so while we're on the listening to hunters, um, you were at the Seeker Show with, with the uh, NZDA Museum, Heritage Museum and Heritage Trust, mm. um, and they had the, the Tarkill recording app. Um, is, is that functional yet? You know, were you able to log the tar from the weekend on that or, or still a prototype? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it is. Um, I think they have rolled it out. I mean, we got, I talked to them there. It's probably pretty low key. They haven't rolled it out too much, but I'd say it's on their website. I haven't checked. Um, they were going to go live with it. Um, and all that, all it was was a very simple app to turn on your GPS on your smartphone allow it to access the data, take a photo, and then tell tell what was your shot. Yeah. And then they'll they'll record it and then they that was their verifiable way that recreational hunters could contribute to the number the animal count. Yeah. So part a lot of the outrage this year was that all the recreational hunters or NZDA culls or any SCI culls or anything that was organized that wasn't through dot wasn't counted towards the ten thousand. Yeah. So I think a lot of people probably need to realise is there were far more than ten thousand tar killed this year. Mm. I know a lot of people probably thought I'll do my bit and got in, got stuck in, and it wouldn't surprise me if double that was actually shot mm-hmm. um, by you know people thinking they were doing the right thing, um, and probably at the moment I'd be I didn't shoot nannies on the last two trips. And that's just a decision I made because I just want to see where the dust settles. Mm. Um, I'm not saying people shouldn't shoot a nanny or two, but um, I would, I'd be hesitant to have a big bomb up because yeah. we just don't know where this resource is going to go. We don't know what's going to happen in the next three years um, in terms of their, their strategy. Yeah. And there was... Um, when I talked talk to Cam in the last episode, he, he was sort of a little bit unsure of, of that, what's to happen, but anyone sort of wanting to sort of get a management idea out there um joseph peter from hardy arts hunting had a really good conversation with kieran island on the educated hunter and that was exactly what they're saying they're saying so saying if docs out there killing all the nannies and and young bulls in 10 years time you know what are we going to have left on the ground so it's got to be all about age and 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 you know shoot the odd meat animal but yeah don't don't necessarily go out there and have a bomb up because we've already got um, Doc and, and and the likes doing controlled kills and, and that's what they're targeting and they're already doing the bomb ups. So maybe it is about, you know, what what do you want out of the herd? What do you want out of a trophy? And, and where's your benchmark? And, and try and improve on that, um, especially if your benchmark's quite low at the moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. We're just, you got to, I think we're just, 
it would be irresponsible not to wait and see. I think, mm. I think we just need to wait and see. We need to hopefully have a good discussion with the through the TAR liaison group and the likes of the TAR Foundation, the Game Animal Council, and NZTA. Um, and you know, TAR TAR need to be managed for the next hundred years. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a lot of hunters that value TAR, a lot of international hunters that value TAR. And um, I, I think DOCA understanding that now. Um, but it's going to take a big coordinated approach and a lot of pressure from hunters. Yeah. So I think hunters need to not let up and we need to keep reminding the Department of Conservation that we value TAR and um, we want reasonable numbers and it just needs to be compatible with the environment, right? So if a valley can have 100 TAR in it and it's in a good, healthy state, it should have 100 TAR in it, in my view. Mm. Um, but if a, if a valley's been eaten out, um, then, you know, we should give that valley a rest. It's just like anything, you manage it properly to get the, the, the outcomes you want. Mm. Yeah, and I guess that's kind of going back to your point about funding and, and, and the science and ecology and getting the right people on the job. Um, that, again, is, is why we should be joining one of these groups uh, so that the right questions can be asked and, and the right measurements can be made so then we have an idea of what is, you know, right in terms of what the outcome is that is desired and you know, there's plenty of people saying that addressing the numbers doesn't actually address the outcome if the outcome is well we want these species of plant and tree and and shrub and un under story growing well then let's measure if they're there or not as you say mm. if, if the the you know the catchment can handle it well then and those are there um grazing animals often improve on that and there's been the argument out there that before the tar um, and before humans there was grazing birds um, that, you know, spread the seed and, and help the, the plant to grow again. So, you know, if that's what we're what we're targeting for, that's where we need to, well, you know, I don't know if that's right either. I don't, I don't know much about ecology either, but um, if, that's, if that's the plan, then well, let's, let's get a direction towards that. Yeah, exactly. No, it's, a, it's a good resource at the moment and let's just hope common sense prevails in this debate and we have a good resource that's managed. I mean, the Fjordland Wapiti model is the ideal model that they should roll out. I mean, we've got the tar ballot. The tar ballot could be, you know, managed in a way that it self-sustains tar management. And at the moment, I think, because I just, I, it's the first time I, I actually just won a ballot. Um, yesterday they drew the tar ballot for next year and I drew, drew a block. And it's the first time since I've been applying that I've drawn and it's getting more and more popular. Um, and I think it's only going to increase. And I think if they put that fee to a reasonable level um, and give the money to a competent helicopter operator, not just the lowest tenderer, mm. um, and someone that really knows what they're doing, then the, you know, like the, the way that they do in the, the, the Ordland for the Wapiti, and allow the guys that are running it, so, you know, the Tar Foundation guys to choose the chopper pilot and communicate to the hunters on where, where, the, where it needs to be managed. Um, I think that's what I'd like to see personally. Yeah, and I think also going back to the Wapiti model, having that meeting before each period to, you know, communicate with what's been happening in each catchment and what to expect and, you know, what what they sort of think a takeable trophy is you really create that expectation of of 
you know, what you're going to go in for and also expectation of, well, that's what I want to get sort of thing, create the narrative around, well, what is a true trophy? You know, what am I really looking for? You know, you, you see that communicated on NZ Hunter and, and um, Red Stacks and the Hunters Club and stuff. That, that mm. Those meetings with Roy are all about, you know, what's the ideal big picture here? And, and yeah, I think that would be another thing that would take the, one, take, take it seriously and, and two, you know, raise the status of, of the Tar Foundation, which, you know, has been really put to the fore of late with, with what happened last year. It's pretty cool, pretty exciting. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and going back to the reading the books thing, I, I just sort of finished reading Ray Tinsley's Call of the Whoppity and it was funny you mm. said about the, we're having the same conversations. I had the exact same thought. And the first book I read was one by Rex Forrester. It's a green cover. I've actually given both these away and I need to give them back. <laughs> um, what was what was the first book that you read and first first author that you read? Um, I think it was the ones that were coming out when I was was the Max Curtis uh, one, um, and I think it's Beneath the Mountain Mist or something like that. So the Curtis, um, there were two or oh, three Curtis brothers, and one of them was in the Forest Service as a color. Um, and then he was, you know, with, in the era with the Percy Lies and hunting the Whitcomb and that book there really inspired me, like reading about the what they did and, you know, the hardships they went through. And then um, Pack a Rifle by um, Holden is another one, really well-written book that, you know, paints a picture in your eye of these these guys living the the rugged life in the hills. Yeah. And then um, those ones sort of romanticised hunting and you sort of read about these big famous valleys and plants the seed to, you know, you want to go there, like you read about it and then you, as you become more in, involved in the hunting scene, you hear of these valleys and you hear someone's been there and you, you know. Um, so those those books are really influential. And then um, the ones I've liked in recent times are the Banwell books. So obviously Bruce Banwell um, was a, a, a deer expert and he wrote um, and collated a lot of the record books like New Zealand, um, the great New Zealand deer heads and the ser- the record book series on all the species. Mm. Um, and so I, I'm, a, I'm a details person and I love reading all the stats and looking at all the heads and um, learning about where the heads are and the different regions and, you know, you've got the Otago and the Rukai and, you know, Mount White and Nelson Heads and the different chamois. And I really study those books. And you, if you look in the records, you can, people have to put the range or the valley where they shot their head. So you can get a lot of data if you think about it and try and figure out where these big heads are shot, where you can get a certain type of head is this area good for chamois or not good for chamois? Has it got good bases? You know, where are the good tar coming out of? Um, you know, you can get so much knowledge from books mm. that would take you a lifetime to accumulate by experiences. Um, you know, um, I, I just, yeah, I really, I really love books. And then my most um, treasured books are the old ones, the really old ones. So the the Don one, the T.E. Don, who um, brought Tar and Chamois and Wapiti and that to New Zealand. So he mm-hmm. wrote a couple of books, Red Deer Stalking in New Zealand and 
the climatization of game anim big game animals in New Zealand, awesome. and then one by Forbes and uh, Wilson as well. So I don't know. You're probably aware there was a big exhibition in the UK, the Wembley exhibition in the 1920s, and at that time they shipped a hot the the very best heads shot in New Zealand. There was a big Dominion um, exhibition. So the British Empire wanted to show its power and wealth, and they invited all of the um, Commonwealth countries to come and have a stand back in the UK yeah. to showcase to the world, to the rest of Europe, its you know its might. And New Zealand shipped back, you know, um, a whole bunch about agriculture and fishing and um, sport fishing, trout, salmon. And the, the main feature or one of the standout features on the whole exhibition was the New Zealand Hall with all the deer heads. Mm -hmm. So we were sending over, you know, 15, 16, 20 pointers, 40 inches by 40 inches. And that was all photographed, beautifully photographed and presented in this book. And there's only, I think, 400 copies wow. and I managed to find one of those and um, you know it's just an awesome old book and you can actually get that for free now so it's gone off copyright and the New Zealand National Library if you go and search um, Forbes New Zealand Deerheads you can get a digital copy and have a look okay okay you were saying about that expo um, and that green cover now it might have actually been Holden not Forrester that wrote that book um, and I read that book when we had a good 24 hours or so in a tent up the top of the Blue River um, nice. hunting there. And, yeah, the, the stories and stuff, going going into the um, Hastings Club for the first time, sure enough, they've got this gigantic head on the wall that's from the Blue River. And <laughs> mm. I, just, um, I wrote about a trip for that in, in my own blog. And, um, yeah, I just as soon as I saw that photo, I put it up. Uh, Head, sorry, I put it up on my Instagram and said, "Man, I wish we'd come across one of these up there." Um, it had had a good, good dose of of Waro that basin, but um, we were, we were still, oh, and I still am, still am an amateur hunter, and so we got a bit scared by the those glacial steep basins that are in there, and yeah, yeah. didn't didn't, bo uh, didn't bother climbing up in the, the twenty four hours in the tent, and only to wake up and go have a look at the basin and get you know put up by a couple of paradise ducks where we were just. <laughs> Disheartenedly walked the 18 k's out that day. That was us. <laughs> oh, that's a typical trip. We've all done lots of those. Um, <laughs> if you like the, if you like those old heads, have you ever heard of the book My My Stalking Memories by Major Wilson? No, sounds cool. So get get a hold of that, and um, that's probably one of my top five all time books. Actually, uh, he 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 was a gentleman hunter at that time, and he he used to book. Um, trips back to the to those valleys. I think he hunts the blue, and you know he hunts all those famous valleys, and he shoots some beautiful heads. And that's all in this book, which is really ahead of its time. So I think it was published in the sixties, and he wrote about his trips between the wars, so between World War One and World War World War Two. He did all the, that's when all the good stalking was, and then it was after the war when there was good stalking on the fringe countries. Because mm -hmm. obviously all the hunters and all the gentlemen were off at war, um, but he he write he writes a really good book about his his stalking memories. And he'd take his wife; they'd do those massive pack camps, have horses and cooks, and he'd take his wife. And um, you know, it was it's a really good book that one. Epic, epic, mate. Um, 
while we're in, in the history with with science it's all about where things have come from and, and the same with law you guys do that law history you know it all, all goes back to the uk um and now you're involved with the the heritage trust and you know talk us through what the heritage trust is about and this museum and where the funding's coming from and, and what what the aim is going forward with, with that awesome what's going to be an awesome building yeah yeah so um so as as um part of moving home and joining the wellington deer stalkers um a couple of the guys on the wellington branch are part of the it's the nzda national heritage trust so it's a registered charity um sort of separate um to the nzda itself although it shares the name and shares the people um it's a it's a trust board so there's six trustees and they're all older um guys um so we've got Albie Frampton, who was an ex-president of the Deer Stalkers. He's a Wellingtonian. Um, Mark Dinarczyk, who is the patron of the Deer Stalkers um, and a long-time um, Wellington branch Deer Stalker. And I took over the treasurer's role from him when he stepped down. And he's an awesome guy. He's the one um, funding the new children's hospital in Wellington. So he's a big-time Deer Stalker and um, long-time um, NZDA man um and then we've got tim uh watson who's a the other young guy along the heritage trust so all the guys are in their um i don't know eight there's some 80s mid 80s um and then me mid 30s and tim late 30s and then we've got barry insull um he's a he's a great guy and um then we've got john riley the librarian he's a member of the hut branch his wife long-suffering wife and um, lovely um, volunteer Dulcie she comes and, and helps us as well um, and so um, and and then our chair our chair is Bob Badland so he he, he was one of the founders of, of it um, and it was started in 2000 by a bunch of old deer stalkers um, so like Hong Tees and um, guys like that who are big names in the deer stalkers and they they saw like a whole lot of stuff going missing so the deer stalkers had a lot of treasures and you move offices or you change executive boards and people get given gifts and people move on and move around or things go missing and they thought uh, you know we've got to keep all this together and so they mm -hmm. thought we'll, we'll establish this museum trust as a separate entity with the sole purpose of curating all the treasures um, and then starting to accumulate them and then keep the records. So one of the key aspects of the Deerstalkers is, is it's got a long memory. It's for every single battle ever fought in New Zealand to do with hunting. Um, and it was formed off the back of um, red deer being shot by the government and deemed a menace, so the deer menace, mm -hmm. back in the 30s. Um, and so they've been sort of banding and representing hunters ever since. And so that's sort of the background to the trust and where we are today. So I got involved a couple of years ago um, and saw the awesome stuff they were doing through Tim. So Tim Tim got involved similarly to me. He, his dad bought at auction Viv Donald's 280 Ross. So the 280 Ross straight pull rifle which shot the first Wapiti in New Zealand. Hmm. So he was at a gun auction and bid on this and picked it up for not very much money 
kind of knew the history and knew the importance and then took it to the trust or to the deer stalkers and they said oh look i've got this rifle you guys would be interested in this can you tell me a bit about it and then he got sucked into it and then when i got back tim said i i'd just done a massive trip around europe and um visited all the hunting museums over there and i was talking to tim about it and he's like oh you're into all the old stuff come and meet the heritage trust guys they meet on a friday and then it just one thing led to another and again it was the book so john riley loved books and we were just comparing notes on old books and he was showing me oh we've got this copy and this and i was just blown away with what they had and then they have things like all the old photo albums so everyone's heard of forbes um and seen his beautiful photos well they've got his photo albums and I mentioned Major Wilson, they've got his photo albums and the Herrick photo albums, the Moose and all these old deer stalkers when they sort of pass on, their families tend to donate their collections. Yeah. So as I mentioned, you know, old hunters and trophy hunters are often collectors. So they'll collect different things. Um, and then the families often don't share that same passion <laughs> that hunters have for hunting things. And you said long, long suffering partners. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of long-suffering partners that um, pretty quickly box things up and ship it to the desk. <laughs> um, and that's happening more and more now, and we're getting more and more amazing things. And we had we marked an archic, um, who is a very astute property developer, saw the building. So he he's always got his ear to the ground on what's happening around Wellington. And this old villa right next to Parliament came up. Mm. And I wasn't around then, it was before my time, but he pitched it to the NZDA National Conference that we should be pulling our funds and buying this building. They passed it at conference and conference said, yeah, right, go ahead, we want our own office. Because um, they were renting an office and they were having to move out. And um, they, they um, got the money together through a combination of donations, Wellington branch investment money, um, the New Zealand Deerstalkers Capital Fund, so members' investment money, and the Heritage Trust. Um, and they had this old building, but then once you buy it, they just sort of moved in and um, were just using it as it was. Then I came along and a little bit of background in law and funding and um, grants, and I thought, look, there's got to be a way you can get money to put into this. Yeah. And I came up again, I came up with an idea, wrote a paper, pitched it to the club and said, Hey guys, we should really be helping the museum with our money because the Wellington branch has got some good investments um, and some really smart people. Let's help these guys and put a deal together. Um, and then did the same at the national level. So did a lot of talking and convincing people it was a good idea. Mm-hmm. And then said, all right, we figured out the criteria. So I applied for a lotteries grant. So there's a whole big grants process you go through. You've got to write big reports. You know, you've got to take a risk. You've got to get building consents and resource consents, concept plans. Um, we had to, to um, engage a feasibility study team. So we, we had to lay out $25,000 um, for a report, for a professional report studying the um hunting museum scene of new zealand and they decided whether it was a good 
had a business plan of whether it was going to be financially viable, whether it was a good idea, whether it was met by another need. And that report um, came out favourable and said, look, we think this is a great location, great concept, should have the support. Um, and then we pulled all this together. Um, and then I went around and over six months got a whole bunch of letters of support. And so I was writing left, right and centre, sending emails off to every single hunting foundation, all the hunting magazines, um, different personalities, organisations, having meetings with the, the heritage arm of DOC, um, meeting with Te Papa, other museums, um, meeting with Wellington Council, police, um, all these different people getting letters of support and recommendation. I think I got something like 40 supporting letters because you've got to build a business case because it's a competitive fund. Mm -hmm. So we're competing against everyone else for a lot of, lot of money. And um, we had great feedback and everyone absolutely loved the idea and everyone's like, you know, this is long overdue. We, you know, it's such a big part of New Zealand's culture and heritage that it's, it's just not represented in, you know, the museum scene in New Zealand and it's even, you know, not properly represented in the museums we have. Mm -hmm. So in my view, like, you know, hunting sort of pushed to the side and even though a lot of people value hunting and are hunters, they... Um, it's not given, you know, it's sort of a little bit niche and underground and it's not in the public space. And this is just going to be an awesome public building where we can showcase hunting, keep the history, you know, keep getting all these old items and photo albums and old home movies and big trophies um, and, and curate it under one roof. And so we basically wrote this thing and, did a persuasive application and then um, submitted it, spent all this money, um, about, I think, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 of Wellington Branch funding support to, you know, to back my vision and say, look, we can do it. Um, and then, yeah, we got a call a few months later and it said, you have been awarded a grant, go ahead and do it. And so then I had the next problem was I had um, a QS that said that we needed about 1.8 million dollars to build this thing um mm -hmm. i had a five hundred thousand dollars from lotto as sort of the cornerstone funding and then i needed to convince the deer stalkers association to put some money in i needed to convince the heritage trust guys to put all of their money in so i had to convince the trustees that this thing was good that we should put all the money that we've made and donated and that they had saved up over decades of you know doing little bits and getting a dollar here and a dollar there and um, then convincing the Wellington branch at an AGM that we should put put our money and all of our financial might behind it um, and anyway it all came together and we're now um, the foundations are laid the block works going up and it's a fully funded project that'll be finished mid 2020 so June July next year awesome man that's that's pretty exciting um, you brought up the fact that you went along to, uh, we got a letter of recommendation from the Dock Heritage Trust, and that's where, you know, there's a lot of history between deer stalkers and Dock and that sort of stuff. What was it like getting that letter, and, and what what should people know about that letter of recommendation from, from Dock? Um, that, that, that letter, I mean, it's obviously... Um, 
so they have they have a historic um, or a curated arm. Um, so they have historic huts, historic sites, and they have their own archives. So, mm -hmm. and they they see the value in what what we do. I mean, the deer stalkers and hunters built most of those huts, um, and they realise that you know we've got these game animals, and it's part of our con conservation story. It's part of our heritage, um, and there's a huge you know, crossover between people who um, worked for, um, you know, New Zealand Forest Service back in the day and now DOC. And even though on a political level or on a very, you know, ideological level, there's certain people in DOC that are really anti-introduced animals, there's still everyday people that still hunt and still value these animals, you yeah. know, despite the tension. And it was really easy. They we had them round, um, they looked at the building and we told them our vision and they were like, well, how, how can you not support this? You're promoting the, the hunting part of um, Department of Conservation. So people forget that part of their job is to manage, um, you know, game animals for hunters. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's Department of Conservation, but it really should be Department of Conservation and Recreation because um, they're there to give, you know, when you actually read the the Act, the Conservation Act, it all talk, it talks about access to hunting, every decision they need to make, they need to think about the impact on, on hunting and, you know, treasure, you know, our treasured access to all of that. And, um, you know, doc, doc is viewed in one light, but they're actually, you know, mm. they're people too, and they realise the value in these things. So, I mean, they were really supportive and um, the letters, you know, the letters not gushing, it's not, but it's, you know, it's like we do, it's, you know, like this is a good thing. There's recognised heritage here. Um, and, you know, it's a good thing that this is being preserved properly for all of New Zealanders. So, mm. oh, that's cool. They were good. Um, when you're talking about the herds of special interests, you didn't mention um, your favourite species, the chamois. Um, mm. Do you see a place or just the range is just, you know, they're just there and they're across it? Um, I think because chamois are from Fiordland to Kaikoura and from like, you know, east coast to west coast and everywhere, they probably aren't going to need to be managed in the same way. They don't have the same um, habits that deer and um, tar seem to and they don't seem to aggregate in big mobs. They don't eat out an area, so they're not going to cause so much um, you know, so many problems for the, the native, you know, um, vegetation. So I think, although I'd love to see, like, you know, a chamois foundation or a chamois foundation and a herd of, you're, you're managing a vast area. Mm. It's a bit like they probably won't have to have a herd of special interest for red deer. And, yeah. you know, as a whole, they might have one for a special herd or, a, you know, people will probably like to see, you know, some of the herds protected, like some hotspots for Otago bloodlines and require bloodlines and that, but you know, I think chamois chamois would probably be all right on on their own. Mm. Yeah. Um <coughs> I was I was having the discussion with Cam about uh Cam Mackay, not Cam Henderson from Point yeah. South about are we right in saying there's a, a female chamois in the record books and she's bloody long. Is that right? Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, I think the, the female is the number one for length. Right, that's what so we're... it's 
it's absolutely huge. I think it's 13, um, in the 13 inch long kind of class. So it's just got huge hooks. Um, and they're a little bit um, unusual because there's some horn rot. So they kind of, the horn rots made them turn out and it's just, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big old nanny. Awesome. Um, so you said about being up the tops of Nelson and, and coming across one and not even knowing what it was. I was to some extent a bit the same. Um, we visited Hermitage and that's when I first saw Tar and Chamois and just was mm. blown away and didn't, a bit like you, didn't realise that these things were actually running around that area. And, and now the more and more I see it sort of made up just the side of the, um, you know, how um, river, creek or river, whatever you want to call it, used to be, in, in, you know, just the, how close they are to those lakes. Um, what is what you know going into the history of it and, and looking at you know what sort of goes on in Europe? Um, Greg, Greg Dooley had an awesome episode where he was over with the Swarovski guys looking at chamois and Austrians. Yeah, was he? You know, knowing the history of that animal, can, can you also tell us how, how they ended up here? Yeah, well, I actually I've been over there. I was in the next valley from where um, I think Willie was, and oh, Willie, that was yeah. out out of um, Austria. Um, so I did a big trip. So I um, I went over and visited the Italian side and the Dolomites. Well, saw them there. Went through to um, Austria and out of Salzburg, where they think they they came. Out of, um, there's an area. There's a mountain range up there where. Um, Franz Joseph got his foresters so they got all the local alpine people to um, basically herd the chamois into nets so um, it's a lot it's an interesting story and there's a little little paper that I can send you written by an Austrian and he was a Kiwi at the time but he he wrote it in in German and in English and it's called Mm -hmm. the chamois or the chamois over there, they're called gams or gemsen, um, and hunting them is die gams, so hunt hunt gems. And um, there was a German warship that visited New Zealand before World War One. So when the when Franz Joseph was emperor, and he was a big chamois man, he sent um, a, a ship called the Panther. To New Zealand and it, and it refueled in Wellington and got stores on its way around circumnavigating wherever it was on its way to and the government hosted the, the captain of the ship and that guy T.E. Don who I mentioned um, spoke to him and said look I'd really like to I'm in the process of procuring a whole bunch of game animals is there any chance that we can have um, chamois and um, obviously wined and dined him and said, look, if you can get chamois, we can send you mountain parrots, so kias and tuataras and ferns. And so that was a time when everyone was learning and, you know, great exploration around the world and people were into natural history museums and they wanted to put exotic animals in their zoos. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it transpired that he thought he could pitch the idea to Franz Joseph. And so when he got back back to Vienna, he said, look, New Zealand wants to do the swap. Will, will you get some chamois? They think they've got the Southern Alps, which will be perfect for perfect environment for them. Um, and he said, yes, I'll get them. So he ordered his hunters to um, go and get all these chamois. And apparently uh, 
according to some accounts that they they pushed like hundreds of these things. So they got all the villagers to basically walk a mountain range and got nets set up and caught all these animals and a whole bunch died, ran off cliffs and everything. And I think apparently it didn't go down too well with the locals. <laughs> um, but he caught them, caught a whole bunch, caught a whole bunch of young ones and then took them back to his palace in Vienna, like Schönbrunn Palace, and then tamed them. So hand-reared the young ones and tamed them and then crated them and shipped them to New Zealand. So I think they got here in two batches. So he sent one batch with some bucks and a few does and then he got a few more and sent them as a secondary release. So there's sort of two releases a couple of years apart. Um, and they were released at the Hermitage. So where you were was like ground zero for chamois. Yeah. No, it's um pretty, yeah, I still remember. I think that must have been how I started to get interested in hunting, being being exposed to the walls of that amazing hotel and at the base of Mount Cook there. It's, it's an amazing place if you're traveling around and you yeah. sort of go and past Lake Pukaki, take a right and drive up there because... One, one, the vista of, of Mount Cook's even better, but two, just go into that hotel and have a look around the lobby because there's some amazing stuff going on in there as well. Oh, it's, a, it's an awesome part of New Zealand there. And you can see why they thought that the chamois would do well and it's perfect for them. New Zealand's proved to be perfect for, the, for them to live in. I mean, by all accounts, they're not as big as they are back in Europe. So either the, the, the animals, the particular animals that we were gifted might have been smaller in stature mm. you know you need, you might have got the smaller smaller um genes or it could be environment you don't know it might might, might not have the best um alpine grasses and that because i know over there from from seeing it you have the big pastures up there where they have the the cows with the bells and mm -hmm. um it's it's a lot higher in altitude um and just a different sort of environment so i think maybe it could be the food that's not as good here mm. or minerals or something but um and then the tar were released not far away from the chamois and they came via england though so yeah they were um they were a gift from from um i think it was lord bedford and he had i think he sent over seeker and a few other things and sent them over and they were um he had procured them from the himalayas from india mm for his game park in England. And then he happened to have them and he just ended up and say, oh, you have some of these on, we'll crate them up and send them over to you. Was that Woburn that has, was that Yeah, him? I think that's right, yep. Yeah. Um, I'm not too sure on the exact, um, but I think it's Lord Bedford um, who, who sent those over and as a gift as well. Mm. Mate, um, when you were at the Seeker Show, you had the, the Nitz Trophy there. Uh, what was what was the conversation like around that seeing something from UCF? What are the fifty eight I've got it written down here, fifty eight inches long, fifty and a half wide, seventeen points, four hundred and seventy four three quarter Douglas score. Um and the as the largest public land stag uh, done by Les Brown Taxidermy Master and and then there's a sixty inch cast that you had there. Um how was the yarn or, or jaw dropping going on seeing that thing? Yeah, those that's a you know a massive draw card, isn't it? I mean, the thing, the thing is just absolutely huge, and it's just incredible that an animal can grow that in a summer, effectively, yeah. you know, spring <laughs> and summer, and um, carry it around fjord and bush, like having been through the bush and that part of the world. It's, you know, the thing's going to be um, catching on everything. 
and it's just um you know at the moment it's just stuck in the nzda office and no one can really see it and that's the the great thing about this museum that we're going to build is that people can come and see these things with their own eyes and just look at how how much bone is growing on on those pure wapiti that we used to have in Fiordland and that 60 inch cast antler is you know like no joke you look at your forearm and that's how thick it is yeah so like you know it's the the the, the mass on those on those wapiti antlers back in the day it's just incredible you know it's, and they they, they were um, bigger than anything shot in in america in their homeland at the time mm. i think they get bigger ones these days but um, I think there's a bit of, you know, management going on, but the heads, I think the, we've got three massive wapiti in the Heritage Trust, um, mm -hmm. all top 10 wapiti. Um, and unfortunately the Halberg head just burnt down in the Marae, which was a real tragedy of, of the, the, that getting burnt down. We were, you know, we were in discussions with them to hopefully have that on display. And, you know, if any, if anyone's listening and they know of old heads, you know, let us know as well. We're always keen to um, display heads and we really want to make this like a world-class um, museum where you can come and just see the best of the best. So yeah. You have to come and see it, mate, because it's just incredible. Yeah, I've got a couple on my list now. Um, we had friends come who'd been down to the Deer Museum in Wanaka and just going through the bloodlines of, of the, the farm deer and, and a lot of walking mm. in that museum as well. And um, you know, he's, he's a keen hunter from Australia and he got excited about that. And I, we, we had the, the two magazines here and I said, oh, look at this. It's going to be a hunting museum in Wellington. And I, he was uh, had to sort of wipe the, the drool up, eh, mate? It's, it's, it's pretty yeah. bloody awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so how did, how did Nitz go about hunting that? Was that sort of something that he, you know, got someone to guide him through? It must have, it must have been a hell of a job to, to claim that you could guide Fieldland. <laughs> yeah, I think the Nitz brothers were um, not usual. So I think they did it like so. I would say these guys like DIY self-guided. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a lot of the guys back in that time were using, you know, the famous guides. Yeah, you know, the Moors um, and Hodgkinsons and Sutherland you know, those and kinds. Of, yeah, this, those guys were. They were. Morale. You know, that's another one. Yeah. Yeah, Meryl, yeah, they they were all guides and they were like the local hard men down there, like, you know, mm. shepherds. Um, I think I'm, I think I'm even related to the Morales, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. we got good good stalking DNA then. Oh, God. Um, yeah. I think the most work. famous, one of the most famous ones was Bell. Um, yeah. One of the, the guides was Bell and he was famous for, um, he could score a head on the hoof. Oh, nice. So he would be like, oh, that one's 50 inches. Well, that, that's, you know, like, nah, it's not a shooter. It's only 38 by, you know, 36. It's not a 50-inch head or whatever. Um, but, yeah, the Nitz brothers, they, so yeah, they were brothers and they would just do it themselves. So they drew a tag. And I think back in the day, like, five pounds was an absolute fortune for a yeah. tag. Um, and there's, there's only a few, few so, There's only a few yeah, tags, though. Yeah, 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 and you got the really famous people like the Herricks and the Wilsons, and um, you know the, those guys at that time were guided in. Mm. Um, but that yeah, they did it the hard hard way and got into the got into these bulls themselves. I think they did it over two seasons, so they went back a couple of times and got some 
you know, huge heads um, and drag them out. And you know, um, I just couldn't imagine carrying out 60 inch heads through that bush. It's just, you know, we all do it with helicopters these days. And uh, it's just a, the way that they did it with their gear. Like they were wearing, you know, woolen and canvas and they had to like find a camp, light a fire and, you know, pitch the billy. Like we just flick on a jet boil, put out our synthetic tents. And, you know, we basically do it super comfy. Whereas, the, you know, they just had a gun, some food, all their gear, and a little pup tent. And, you know, they'd, they'd put any, any modern hunter to shame, I think. Yeah, that, that call of the Wapiti, Ray Tinsley nearly killed himself many times in that book. Uh, just like yeah. exposure or he nearly fall, fell down a um, scree slope. And then the thing he said, at the, where he stopped, he was in the dark as well, and where he stopped was basically a 100-metre fall. <laughs> just, yeah. you know, and so he went back over the saddle and you know, camped, camped up on the side and got belted with snow and rain, which which can happen out there. How many times have you been into the um, Wapiti zone? Uh, I've been into Fiume a few times. I, I, went, I had a ballot this year, actually. I was in the Charles block, which is right on the southern end of the, mm-hmm. the herd, and that's quite they manage that quite a lot. So they shoot a lot of animals out of there to keep the numbers down and to maintain a buffer zone. So our party, I didn't pull the trigger. Um, the guy, John, I was hunting with didn't. Um, I think one stag um, with my brother and his mate, Elliot, um, got a big old sort of red mm-hmm. type animal, which was in the big 11 pointer. Um, but um, no, our block was pretty tough going. Um, and then a few years ago, I was at one of the core blocks, which was where Tinsley and the Tinsley Highway up there, which was the Cat's Eye, mm-hmm. the old George. So that's on the peninsula where you've got the Steena Burn and the Cat's Eye. And then you've got Bulls Creek over the side. Um, and um, yeah, my brother shot a really good um, Wapiti up there, and I shot an 11 um, back then. Um, and it's just tough country. Like, I know some guys absolutely love wapiti hunting, but I find it, you know, once once every few years is enough. It just you need to have enough time to forget how hard it was. Yeah. To think, oh, now's a good time to try and apply for a ballot. But yeah. I've only I've I've applied for ballots, but I just don't draw. I'm a very unlucky drawer. Like I said, I I've been applying for tab ballots for years, and I only just drew one now. And it's, you know, all these ballots are getting more and more harder and harder to draw actually it's yeah. not good for us a, a humble hunter from wellington to get a ballot yeah come, come back to the aussies there's plenty of them uh, i saw putting up photos of them applying so good on them and uh be interesting to see the numbers of internationals that got into that ballot eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i mean the thing is that i think that they can sort of get educated by youtube now like you can learn a lot about how to hunt new zealand and you can a good rifle can make up a lot for a bad hunter. And mm. so some of the gear these days, you know, like you can get yourself a four thousand dollar scope and a big, big long gun and make yourself a, a better hunter. Um, but I think you know a lot of these guys probably come over and um, find it real tough going, at least for the first time. Yeah, but I think you know they they just probably don't have the right gear or you know, the right experience or skills to tackle some of those Landsborough West Coast blocks because it's not the East Coast. Nah. 
Uh, well, that's what I was quite impressed with um, Brian Cole when he was even on the East Coast. I mean, and as we've spoken about, he had a, had a bit of information, and even he was, you know, up up on the top there. You know, um, the guy I was with, his name escapes me right now. You know, he was constantly saying through the camera to his wife, you know, we've got we've got life insurance and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and as you say, it's um, Mansbury stuff's not the East Coast. So. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know. And um, maybe those guys take more risks than Kiwis because we can just come back. But, yeah. you know, they're like, oh, this is the trip of my lifetime. I've got to take a risk. And they get unstuck, you know, like we're always rescuing um, foreign hunters, it seems, or they're, all, or they're falling off the hill or trying mm. to cross a river and drowning. It's, yeah. it's a bit of a problem. But, yeah. I mean, what can you do? It's at the moment you can do what you like in New Zealand. You can go anywhere you want. Yeah. I think it'll be um, if this arms bill passes, it's going to be a lot harder for them to get firearms. Mm-hmm. So they might have to come and bow hunt tar, and that, then 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 they'll get a lot of respect if they can uh, bow hunt a bull tar. <laughs> yeah, of 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 any any you know, like you say that'd be a, that'd be a trophy in itself to do that. But then to then get to those the status bulls, that'd be that'd be incredible. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I think a lot of international hunters are going to be worried about how this firearms law is going to play out. I think yeah. the guides will be happy because yeah. the guides will have to be, you have to engage a guide to basically get a firearm and you need a pretty good firearm to get a good bull. So. Mm. And yeah, that was, that was sort of the question that I raised after talking to Brian was like, well, he, he wasn't doing anything wrong at all. And, and, and full power to him that he came all, the, all this way and, and did it and, and got the information he needed and went out there and was successful. But it, then it was kind of like, well, what happens to our guiding industry if these guys just come here and, and do it on their own with that potential risk that they get into trouble because they might, you know, one, don't know the country and two, might push a little bit harder because they're not coming back. Um, and that was my question. Well, what do we do about it when there's no protection to the species or anything like that? There's no value placed on the species or anything like that what do the guides do? What are they are they selling? And you know, maybe that might be one of the positives that come out of this firearms law is that, you know, if someone's coming here to hunt internationally, they're going to need to engage that, that service as well as get, you know, into fantastic areas with fantastic knowledge and, and make the right choice and what they select actually is worthwhile taking home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a hard one. I mean, oh, I, I would like I I I'm sort of a libertarian, so I don't like restrictions and. Yep. But I'm also safety conscious, and you got to maybe you know, education is the way to do it. Maybe make them sit some sort of, um, you know, skills course or do some online training to say you know this isn't just out the back. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I'd hate to see overregulation. I think think people think rules can solve anything at the moment this is what this government seems to think is you know yeah. just layer on another rule and but it doesn't sort of but doesn't sort of change what's going to happen on the ground does it like you can put a rule in place but it doesn't mean anything and i don't know it's a tough one i mean i've hunted in america and i did it got tags and went to wyoming and did it myself diy and you know that was awesome um and I would hate to see that taken away from me, or having to hire a guide over there for ten thousand US dollars for for a hunt, and then all of a sudden, instead of a few couple of thousand dollars, it's you know super expensive, and you're into the you know fifteen twenty thousand New Zealand dollars to 
to hunt over there. So, I mean, I can see the argument on the one side, um, but I'd also hate to see it all over, over-regulated. You know, I'm happy for Aussie hunters to come or, you know, European or, you know, the Dutch and the Danish and Scandinavians and the Swiss. You always see that those are the guys you actually meet in the backcountry. You don't meet many Kiwis. Like to, and, and they're all, you know, reasonably competent. Um, and, you know, Brian and that, their hunt, I haven't watched, I've seen that he's put a video out and I haven't actually watched it, but, I mean, well done on them for, um, you know, getting the information, getting into a good spot and, and getting something because that's a big achievement, I think, to get mm. a tar and a chamois um, without having the benefit of any experience in that kind of country. It's, they, they did really well. And anyone that, you know, wants to do that, I'll, I'll support them getting out and hunting. Mm. The less barriers to hunting, the better. And smarter people than me will come up with the answer. I mean, hopefully that's what the GAC is there to do. And they, they represent you know, guiding New Zealand and guides New Zealand should have some input. But to make make every international hunter have a guide, I think is probably the wrong approach. But that's just mm. my view. Yeah, yeah, and and that's what I've always said as well. You know, I could probably do with a guide, but um, <laughs> my, I'd love my, a guide. Yeah, my, my choice is to try and figure this funny thing out for myself, which I, I do do a lot with. You know, end up banging my head against the wall and falling over and that sort of stuff but that's what makes you stronger yeah. they, they say <laughs> um, exactly on the legislation stuff how did you think the response was to presenting at the arms bill hearings did no, i was I started watching that long video um i think joseph peter <laughs> put it up the other day it was five hours long um mm-hmm. yeah um <laughs> how did you how did you feel how was your experience um Look, it's interesting. It's the first time I've actually, other than voting during an election, participated in democracy. So, mm. you know, as a lawyer, I always read the laws or make sure that the person I'm advising is complying with the laws. And, you know, we normally think of things as quite black and white, but then going into the process of making a law in response to, like, a tragedy, um, and in my view, it's a really bad law because coming from... Having trained as a lawyer and gone to law school, you you learn about the fundamentals of what you know our English law system is, what um, you know our our constitutional framework is, what the rights we have are. You know, um, you know when you think about it, New Zealand's at the the end of a long chain of legal history and civil wars and, and you know international wars. Um, when you put it in, into context, you know, like it goes back to you know. The Magna Carta in in 1066, when we when you know the the people of England rose up and um, put in some basic rights to stop the state and the um, the state and the police having so much power over individuals, they could go in at any any time and um, you know arrest you or detain you, and you're subject to the whim of the people in charge. Mm. And to f- bring it forward a thousand years where we are now and post World War Two when when the Bill of Rights the concept of the Bill of Rights came into play. You know, the civil wars that they had in America to protect basic rights and liberties. Um, you know, literally people have died and laid down their lives to protect basic fundamental rights of the individual. And it kind of really upset me the way that this whole process has happened it's again it's a political agenda the 
Christchurch massacre was done by a foreign terrorist who um, broke all the laws and, and was a criminal um, and he should you know go to jail for they should throw the book at him and but then on the flip side to use that to lever into law-abiding New Zealanders and um, put in the laws that they've got in place and the way that they're giving powers to police mm. and then the, the conversation that the police are having in the you know Chris Cahill around turning it into a criminal gangs debate um, and skewing the the conversation to make it look like there's a real big problem with firearms in New Zealand when there isn't. And they're basically politicised, you know, a whole legitimate segment of New Zealand um, that are validly holding firearms for legitimate purposes and it's something that we as New Zealand have a culture of. We've always had firearms, we've always hunted, we've got a big rural community where they need firearms for, you know, pest control and we have a huge amount of people that just love um, sport shooting or competitive shooting, Olympics. Um, and, you know, the great tradition of the New Zealand opening duck shooting weekend with shotguns and, um, you know, the, deer, the, the, the annual red deer stalk, you know, where everyone sort of goes out on, on, on Easter weekend and tries to get a stag and that. They're just totally ignoring that part of our identity. Mm. Um, and I just find it like somewhat appalling that um, this government and the way that it tries to behave is just behaving in the, the, the most egregious way against fundamental rights that I've ever seen any government behave. Like it's, it's the hypocrisy is unbelievable in my view. And, you know, when it all happened and we saw all this, like, I, 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 I'll admit I had some sleepless nights and I knew there was some laws coming, but the way that they're, um, treating licensed firearm owners, the presumption of guilt on a lot of instances, the, the abilities to not give you a firearms license when mm. you've just simply been charged with something. And the problem I have is you're aggregating the powers so there's no checks and balances. So the police um, are the ones that issue the license. They're the ones that take away the license. They're the ones that monitor it. Um, and they're the ones on the one hand that administer the firearms law and then on the other hand they're, they're, they're enforcing and, and doing the crimes act so they can raise all the charges mm -hmm. so if the police really wanted to get someone they could just raise a charge you've been charged you just qualify with your firearms and people will ruin it'll ruin lives and ruin careers and um, you know some of the guys that use firearms are just you know maybe not the most upstanding citizens but Going into the bush, hunting, shooting um, is a good way to, you know, turn a um, turn lives around. Like, there's nothing better than getting out and going hunting. And we've all done stupid things when we were young, and this is going to hardwire it for life. So you'll just be blocked from accessing a whole recreation um, and a huge segment of New Zealand's um, outdoors and the use of firearms is, is, you know, just on the back of one man's gross terrorist act and then the views of the police association around gangs um it's just like they're pushing legitimate firearms owners to the side and saying we don't we we're not listening to you we don't care we've got our own agenda this law's um going to happen and you guys need to just suck it up is then that's what my takeaway of the questions from some of the select committee members have been is that they're trying to legitimize this again it's a bit like the 
the tar thing, it's convenient, they've got a different agenda, they want to comply with some UN obligations, they need to put the gun register in because they've signed up to the protocol. And phase one is to register all guns and um, and they're really wanting to, they'll kill the clubs, so clubs like what you and I are party to will have to be registered and file and they'll be able to give surveillance over anyone that they want that's part of a club and you know they could if they want they could um, be unfair and unfairly take away fire firearms ranges shut down clubs and um, take away people's guns and take away their licenses so I mean there's a without getting too technical it's just um, a whole lot of basic rights that they're they're undermining and it's mm. um, it's just it's somewhat unbelievable that this is happening the way it's happening as well. You know, it's interesting you bring up that UN um, registry thing and you're seeing it sort of happening in parallel with with Canada and I was joking with Ken Mackay that um, Western Canada, somebody put up that Western Canada and the South Islands should join forces as a hunting mecca. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, because... Uh, yeah. A bit, you know, it's 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 more uh, rural urban divide in New Zealand, but um, I think west west versus east in, in Canada is a bit a bit sort of um, polar opposites as well. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's it's interesting. Like, I was reading the news today, and um, President Obama did a speech where he said, you know, this whole woke movement. You know, like when you're outraged about everything and you've got the moral high ground and he said, you know, he, he's a, he even said that it's gone too far. The woke generation need to realise that their view is just one view mm. and they can't be all high and mighty and everyone's entitled to their own passions and their own views and it's not up to one group of people to tell another group of people how to live their lives. Yeah. And at the moment, um, the, the way that things appear to me is that there's a bunch of people that are in control that are trying to tell New Zealanders how to live their lives rather than doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is, um, you know, um, just providing basic services and meeting the needs of New Zealand in terms of health and education. And, you know, they're putting their ideologies into play and it's appalling. And um, I've never in my entire life seen it play out the way that it's played out under this government. And, Hopefully, New Zealanders have woken up. I mean, we're, the basic way of life in New Zealand has been attacked. I've got family that are farmers, and there's the fresh water stuff that's going on. Got family that are fishermen and white baiters, and they want to, you know, stop the white baiting. Then you've got, um, you know, Eugenie Sage um, negotiating a huge budget increase to get rid of deer and tar and chamois and. Um, you know, and then you've got this the police and the people in, involved with police saying that we don't know firearms, a good firearm, we need to get rid of all the firearms. It's just, except, except for them walking around armed, which, you know, I've, I've said it to a few people, you know, you don't want to sound conspiratorial, but it was kind of like, you know, should Christchurch Central Police be armed next week? Unfortunately, the terrorist attack happens, and then, uh, and previous to that, it was the tar cull thing, and then it was kind of like, like you say, it's almost like our liberties as individuals is going to be taken away. All of a sudden, yeah. sort of a run of things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm all for um, freedom, and you know, within reason. You don't, you don't, um, you know, you don't hurt other humans, and what you should do shouldn't impact other people. But if you're 
you know, just a hunter and you're um, wanting to have a rifle and shoot a deer to feed your family, what, what's, what's it to do with the government? Hmm. If hmm. you're doing that in a safe, law-abiding way, they should be like, that's fine. That's, yeah. You know, we need hunters and we, you need a firearm and actually you're doing the nation a favour because we have a conservation concern and we need to put everything into balance. I think everything in moderation is okay, but just the doll's just gone a bit too far. And um, yeah. I've never been political, but I'm, I assure you, this year I've sort of I'm, I'm now I've now um, woken up to that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of that, woke up. I saw somebody's Halloween costume was a guy had a millennial T-shirt on. He was wrapped in bubble wrap and had a whole bunch of offended stickers <laughs> all over him. I thought that was quite good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. I'm I'm not a millennial. Well, I guess I'm technically a millennial, but I grew up in the pre-computer age. So I was yeah. born in the early '80s. So I'm on the cusp of where we had we could play Bull Rush, and um, you only got an award if you got first. And um, you know, like you had to actually, um, you know, go through the school of hard knocks. Whereas now, you know, it's it's a different world we live in, and um, you know, it is. You know, you do have to put your bubble wrap on, I think. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm from the other end of the 80s and we were definitely that transition. So some things sort of sit well, others... So you didn't play Bull Rush? We did. Uh, and um, <laughs> I, I remember as a six-year-old, you know, at a full primary school breaking through and, and yelling bullshit as well in the middle of a Catholic school. So I don't know what was going wrong there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, think, I think the cutoff is that, that generation is the Bull Rush generation. Um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe maybe we just were too. We're, we're, you know, everyone's still good, and the kids growing up now they're they're going to be awesome, and they're going to have a great future. And I just hope that you know when we come up with issues like this, that you know, mine and your sons can go hunting and own a firearm, and when they are you know eighteen and they're at uni, and they can go to go to uni and feed their flat with you know venison steaks. That's that's what I hope that we can you know still have all of that that's the main thing for me that's right and yeah if my daughter wants to chase me around then go for it <laughs> <laughs> yeah mate um we'll probably we're doing a good yarn here um yeah well, shit yeah two hours nearly um where do, where do people find you is it just the instagram really um well, it all started with my um my web page about hunting books but that's yep. a bit dormant so i i listed every single hunting book i knew of and because I couldn't find that resource. So that's just www.thehunter.nz mm -hmm. and that's all about books. And then, yeah, the Insta, you just, I just put up what I like, do the odd book review, just put personal stuff up and that's, yeah, at, at the Hunter or the Hunter NZ, which is the underscore Hunter underscore NZ. And mm. Just put up what I like to do and about hunting and the odd thoughts and, you know, just getting after it, really. I'm just a, just a humble wreck hunter. Wicked, mate. Cool. So usually I get people to leave this with a thought or an idea or even a quote or a question even um, that they can answer um, you on, on your Instagram or, or something like that. What would you like to leave us with? Um, I'd like people just to think about joining up one mm. of the clubs or societies and um, you know, think about what, what hunting means to them and what it would mean if it was taken away or their family couldn't do it or their children or they couldn't enjoy the outdoors with their mates at the way that we currently do, either with you know, 
the freedom to have firearms and um, the freedom to hunt animals in reasonable numbers. And if if and if you um, you know you want to investigate it further, I recommend going to a NZDA meeting. Go join your local branch because they've probably got the biggest network of clubs in New Zealand. And um, don't go to the first meeting and ask for a hunting spot. Um, you know, <laughs> go to a few meetings and make friends, and people will invite you to their hunting spot. I can assure you. Once once you you know get a bit of a common um, rapport and people will be keen to take you hunting and get you a deer. Like, no, no doubt you didn't get invited the first time you met Ben to go and shoot a seeker. Nah, but it was a few, few meetings later and I was, I was just, I said, I was so grateful. I said, mate, you're a bloody legend. And he yeah, is, he's a legend. Yeah. 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 Cool. Go and meet more legends. Everyone should meet a whole bunch of legends at Deerstalker clubs, that's what I think. Yeah, epic. I'll press start, stop there and that'll be us. Awesome. Cheers, Ryan. Great to Awesome way to finish there from Gwyn. Join in today and meet some legends. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> One more um, public service announcement from me, another link that you'll find in the show notes. I've teamed up with Wanaka Hunter, uh, Nick, uh, and we've created the Mo Hunters Mo team for Movember. If you wanna, you're not watching the video because you're listening to this, but if you check out the video on YouTube, I've sporting a dirty mo. Nick always sports a dirty mo. Um, I've taken the beard off and I've left the mo. And I know what you're saying, you're supposed to grow the mo throughout Movember, but I've done that probably the last eight years. And this year I've decided, like Nick, to sport a, a stonker. I've got the old, um, as I usually grow, the the Tom Selleck, wishful thinking I think. But yeah, that, that style of, of mo. Somebody messaged me the other day asking if I was in pornos in the 80s but of course I wasn't born so yeah uh, that's what it looks like it looks pretty disgusting Alex isn't too happy about it but anyway that website and again just come to the show notes it's easy https now that colon dash dash moteam.co dash capital mo um hyphen hunters question mark mc equals one and Websites are random. But yeah, just go to the link in the show notes. Easy peasy. And while you're there, check out Exogenous Ketones by Prove It. Um, Yketo.proveitnow.com And uh, yeah, check what you can do with exogenous ketones, especially if you're in Aussie, US, Canada, or, or East Asia. It's available straight from that website. If you're not, check it out. If you're interested, um, contact me at Stag... Oh, I'm going to get this right. I've changed it. At the Stag Raw. Easy on Instagram um, or on the Waikito Facebook page, W-A-I-K-E-T-O on Facebook. Easy to find. Again, links in the show notes. Easy peasy. Um, and I can order that for you. I had someone contact me on the Stagraw Instagram page after our last episode with Kim. Um, and yeah, happy to help. I'm happy to flick you the details and, and get you sorted, get exogenous ketones delivered to your door. Also, um, yeah, if you'd love to chat about the podcast and what you think, if you'd love to come on the podcast, contact me. Um, obviously, with Labor Weekend last week, I didn't get anything done. I planned to do a couple, but got none done. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I'm uh, back in a little bit of catch-up mode, but yeah, I've got uh, a few people in the pipeline. Speaking of Movember, I'm going to get uh, Rob back on and we can have a chat about what Movember New Zealand's 
keen on doing this year. That was one of the people I was supposed to talk to when I was up in the mount, but life was in the way. It was a beautiful weekend up there. Hope you're well. Hope you're doing awesome. Hope you're following your passions. Hope you're working through any issues that you got. Um, yeah, had a chat with the boys from the Unshakable Man the other day. Um, they're going to get me on the podcast too. Make sure you check out the Paul Michaels episode I did. Um, that was a three-hour epic with Paul. We talked about a lot of stuff similar to some of the stuff that I've just talked about here with Gwyn. Um, maybe I'll finally get on to um, Please Blow My Mind with Will up in Auckland. I'm going up there in a fortnight. Maybe there'll be a window to record something with him. But yeah, Will Fleming, he's a legend. Uh, he's doing podcasts out of a van. It's pretty cool. So yeah, massive shout out to him. Love his work. Uh, and yeah, hit me up if you've got anything, any thoughts. It's been awesome. Great to bring you another episode and uh, keep listening. Keep giving us ratings on iTunes and yeah, keep sharing with your friends. Awesome. Thank you. Bye.